Living Time and the Integration of the Life by Dr. Morris Nichol. We are told that we are asleep and can awaken. And when, as Law puts it, we begin to grasp this, we see that we are all living in a kind of dream, a fact we sometimes become aware of in moments of great danger or emotion. You must notice that this is not a pessimistic doctrine. You know, by people's reaction to this, when they're told that they're asleep, you would think that it was a negative thing, that it was a pessimistic doctrine, because people's reaction is they're offended. But just because people take offense doesn't mean that what they're taking offense at is offensive. In fact, today, more than ever that I've known in my lifetime, which isn't really that long, but I consider 67 years long enough to be able to say with certainty that people take offense more now than they ever have before in my experience. And they do it readily, and they do it often, and they do it with such a degree of self-righteousness that it is remarkable. If you tell a man who is lying in the mud that all is mud, the teaching will be negative. When the writer to the Ephesians says, Awake you that sleep and arise from the dead, in Ephesians 5.14, he means by the quotation that we are like dead people and live the life of dead people, and that our state of sleep is really death. Not beginning with ourselves, we do not see ourselves. You must see that we do not begin with ourselves. We begin with other people. We begin with other things. We begin without our life. Very rarely does anyone come to himself. It is not something that happens automatically. To awaken is to see more clearly. At such a moment, one may see how people are dead. When you begin to awaken, you look around you and you find that you're alone. Pretty much that everyone else is pretty much out like a light. But they imagine that they're wide awake. One can see the terrible emotions that govern humanity written on their faces, which they nourish without clearly seeing what they are doing. I was talking to Curtis this afternoon about this. When I was younger, I was very idealistic, and I knew that I had a destiny. I knew that I had a mission. I knew that I had something to do in life. And I was shocked at how much opposition I received. I was shocked at the people who pretty much were on the same path but opposed. I was flabbergasted, and I became very negative about it and disheartened and discouraged because I thought, well, people are junk. What is all this about? And what I finally realized was that what Jesus said from the cross was something that we all needed to understand in an experiential way. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. People who are asleep don't know what they're doing. When you see somebody sleepwalk, and I don't know if you've ever seen anybody sleepwalk, but I had a brother who used to sleepwalk, and you would just swear that he was awake. But he was sound asleep and had no cognizance of what he was doing. But he looked very much like he knew exactly what he was doing. This is a very bizarre thing. And that's kind of like what life is. You start to awaken and you look around and the people around you are all asleep, but they look like they're awake. And that's misleading. And they think they're awake. And that's even more misleading. I don't know about it now, but I used to talk in my sleep. I don't know if I talk in my sleep or not. I imagine I still do. But some people used to ask me questions in my sleep. I thought, that's really a dangerous thing to do. And you have to ask yourself, what would possess someone to do that? The person is obviously asleep. Why would you ask them something in their sleep, thinking, of course, you're going to find out some secret? Or So basically what you're thinking is that in their waking hours, they're liars. And so the only time you're ever going to get a straight answer is when you catch them off guard in their sleep, which is a really icky view of people. Why would you be sleeping with someone who you thought that about? But then people are people and they know not what they do. So that's what I had to learn. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. 
to awaken is to see more clearly, and at such a moment one may see how people are dead. One can see the terrible emotions that govern humanity, written on their faces, which they nourish without clearly seeing what they are doing. I watched a film last night, Edges of the Lord, and it was about this Polish Jew during the Second World War, a little boy, and his father and mother knew that the Nazis were coming and they were in danger, and they had to flee, but they had nowhere to go. They were in Krakow, and to save their son, they taught him catechism, Catholic catechism, and they made him learn it. The father was quite insistent about it. He would make the kid hold on to a bar in the closet, you know, one of the clothes bars. You make him hold on to it. His feet didn't touch the ground. He wouldn't let him go until he answered all the questions right. And the kid just cried and went, why do I have to do this? You know, the whole thing. And finally, they were parted. They sent their kid off to the country to stay with some family, a Polish family, where he would be safe. And then they went their way, which was to the camps, never to return. And the boy posed as a Catholic, went to church, but the priest knew that he was not a Catholic. So the priest, rather than make him a Catholic, he let him be a Jew, but covered for him. So when it came time for his first Holy Communion, one day he was in with the priest, and the priest was making the communion wafers, stamping them out with this little cookie-cutter thing. And he said, was this really the body of Christ? He says, no, right now it's just flour and like that. No, it's not. He said, not until I bless it. And he said, well, then I can't eat it. And he said, no, but I never bless the edges. And so the little edges, you know, the pieces that were cut off. And he took one for each of his family members and everybody, and he lined them up. And when it came time for his first Holy Communion, at the end of the film, the priest gave everybody else a host. But when he got to him, he showed him that this is one of the edges of the Lord and gave that to him. And it's based on a true story, I guess. And the kid said, I'm so grateful to all the people who let me be who I was who let me stay who I was. They didn't make him into something else. And I thought that was really so beautiful. Anyway, during the film, the Nazis were doing horrible things, just horrible things. And I thought you would think that with so much horror and death and destruction and cruelty around them that people would be kinder to one another, but they weren't. They were really cruel to each other. And I was saddened by that because I realized that one can see the terrible emotions that govern humanity written on their faces, which they nourish without clearly seeing what they are doing. And I must say that all of the cruelest people that I've known in life really didn't know what they were doing. And I have come to see that and allow for that. And it has made me much more forgiving and much more compassionate and much more understanding and tolerant of people's ugly behaviors and emotions and words. The idea of the Christian teaching at its source before it became externalized and organized into machinery was about awakening from sleep through the light shed by the inner meaning of the teaching. Christ was one who had awakened and taught others one way of awakening. The whole idea of following certain rules, precepts, and ideas was not for any moral end, but in order to arise from the dead. And, obviously, externalized, mechanized religion has completely missed this. So now we have basically a bunch of dead Christians running around trying to make other dead people like them with slogans and bumper stickers and sayings and banners and so on. And, so on. and what do they do outside of abortion clinics? Protests. Protests, things like that. You look at it and you think, no wonder the world is so upset with them. And no wonder they're so upset with the world. They're both trying to make each other be something that they're not and that they themselves are not. And that never works well. Arise from the dead to reach a possible inner evolution. And so that writer to the Ephesians says, Awake you that sleep and arise from the dead and Christ shall give you light. See that you walk circumspectly. 
To notice where one is going internally is to be more conscious to oneself. In this way, the writer adds, you will redeem the time. So to walk more circumspectly is not necessarily to watch where you're going physically in the world, but to watch how you are doing what you're doing. In other words, don't walk the earth so proudly, but walk the earth more humbly. Walk the earth with more of an awareness of your place in the scale of being, your place on the ladder, which is very low, and especially low compared to how much we think of ourselves. If you consider where you really are in the scale of being compared to where you think you should be and how wonderful you think you are, it can really be disheartening, and it should be disheartening. It should be humiliating. You should be humbled when you realize where you actually are compared to where you need to be and compared to where you think you are. To return to Law, remember William Law, whatever we understand in particular of what he says, it's obvious that he regards our ordinary degree of consciousness as being comparable to a dream state and that our entire life, career, profession, our actions, thoughts, and so on are dreamlike. We live in a kind of dream from which it is possible for us to awaken. And, again, we must note the point, this arousal from slumber is connected with another sense of time. So Paul says, you will redeem the time. And Law says that this is, we need another sense of time. Actually, Morris Nichols says we need another sense of time. Law alluded to it. If then we are willing to admit the possibility that there is a higher level of consciousness, for you, this is very easy, and you should be very grateful for this. You have worked hard for it. You have put forth effort. You have put in the time. And so for you, this is a real thing. You know that there is the possibility of a higher level of consciousness for you. You may not know what it is, but you know that there is something above you. And that is a great blessing and a great boon in this day and age, because many people have no clue. In fact, the vast majority have no clue or a further degree of experience inherent in our nature, we have to suppose that another understanding of time is connected with it. He'll explain this, and it's going to take some effort. So I'm warning you now to prepare yourself and try and stay awake. It is extremely difficult to see what is meant here. And when he says it's extremely difficult to see what is meant here, and he's speaking to people back in the 50s when they could think and understand better than we are equipped to do it now in our time. They were much better educated. They spoke usually in Great Britain. The people he was hanging out with spoke at least two languages, and they were very well educated, and they were thinkers, and they were doers. Us, not so much. Let us say at present that our ordinary level of consciousness, which law emphatically says is a condition of sleep, and therefore unreal relative to a higher order, is bound up with our ordinary experience of time. Now, I want you to understand that what he's saying is that what binds us, what imprisons us in our ordinary state of consciousness, which is very low, is our experience of time. The way that we experience time causes us to be trapped, imprisoned in a very low state of consciousness. Or rather, it is bound up with our notion of time and with all the deductions and conclusions that we make by taking time to be what it seems. Now, notice he says what it seems, not what it is, but what it seems. We take time as what it seems. Now, he's going to explain this in ways that I find very fascinating and very enlightening. So pay attention. Let's suppose that at the level of our ordinary conscious state, all our thoughts and feelings and our understanding in general have a certain arrangement common to us all. 
we can suppose that very easily. We all suppose that when we stand up, gravity is going to hold us, our feet to the floor. We're not going to all float around. Or if one of us won't float around, and the rest of us will all be this way or that way. We don't expect the table to float. We don't expect any of these things to happen. We all have these things in common. It's a certain arrangement that's common to us all. Let's suppose that this arrangement is to a great extent due to the appearance of things as conditioned by time. Let's just say, for now, the appearance of things. Now, we don't know what that means, as conditioned by time. You don't really know what that means. And the reason you don't know what that means is because it's very difficult for us to think about time. And the reason it's difficult to think about time is because you can't see it. You can see this table. You can see me. You can see this love seat. You can see that sofa. You can see those chairs. You can see that chest over there. You can see these things. So it's easy to think about them. But things that you can't see, it's more difficult to think about. That's all that he's saying. As long as we passively regard time as what it seems sensually to be, as a moment passing into nothingness, we necessarily inhabit this level. That is, our ordinary level of consciousness is closely bound up with our ordinary view of time. Where is time? The only thing we know about time is now. Where is the past? We can't see it. You can go to an old building, a ruins. When Rex and I were in Guatemala, we went to structures that had been there during the earthquake and when the Spanish were there hundreds of years ago. And there were still the ruins of all these things. But there were no Spanish there. And there were just ruins. So where was all that stuff? Where did it all go? Now, if we went back, we would see things that were not there when we were there. And we would say, where did they come from? And then we would see that there were some things that weren't there. And we would say, well, where did they go? We don't know because we can't see them. That's what he's talking about, our experience of time. We see it sensually our eyes. We experience it through the sense mind and through the senses. Let's go no further at present, save to say that noetic experience, that is conscious experience, on a higher level beyond our state of slumber, is beyond time sequence, so that we can understand a little how a different view of time may open the way to the possibilities of new experiences. Some of you have been in accidents, and I mean automobile accidents, motorcycle accidents, and things of that description. And I've heard, in fact, I think I heard Jess say this, that he was in an accident and everything just slowed down. And it wasn't what was happening, it just was so slow that it took forever. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Now, what I'm saying is, and what he's saying is, that beyond the time sequence, the usual time sequence that we're used to, and you have to admit that that time sequence was very slowed down, very different so that we can understand a little how a different view of time may open the way to the possibilities of new experiences. You experienced that accident in a completely different way because it was so slowed down and it seemed otherworldly, unreal, and yet it was happening and you were there. And you were having thoughts that were not slowed down while everything else was. So that tells you that something happened to your consciousness. Actually, we should say rather that an internal perception of the meaning of another view of time might bring about this result. So he had an internal perception of another meaning of time because it was so slowed down. Time didn't really slow down. It was the same, but his internal perception of it was completely different. And a lot of you have had this experience, or many of you, or some of you, have had an experience where time just almost stood still. We should not suppose it comes merely from theoretical thinking. And if you've experienced it, you know that it didn't come from theoretical thinking because you weren't thinking about it. It just occurred. It was like pressed upon you. To be told that time is an illusion does not help anybody unless they have already caught a glimpse of another idea of time. So if I say to Jess, time's an illusion, he goes, yeah, I can, I can understand that because it's malleable. It can be changed. Now, that's a bizarre thing to say. Time can be changed because we don't have any experience of that unless we do.
And if we do, then we can say it. And if we don't, then people who don't have the experience say, well, you're crazy. But one can readily see that one's ordinary consciousness is very much dominated by time and that a great deal of our fear and anxiety is a matter of time. How much time do you have left? Connie said today I was putting together a chair and she said, geez, it's too bad Curtis didn't get here early. I just laughed. I wanted to knock on her head. Hello, are you in there? Curtis has never been early in his life. She said, he was early once. I said, 10 minutes is not early. It's just not early. I mean, it's just not. What you can count on, count on it. I'll bet my pinky on it almost every time. He'll be late. He will not arrive at his target time. He won't do it. He can't do it. It's not possible for him. He is not wired that way. He's not made up that way. He thinks that time is going to wait for him. He thinks that what he plans, he is going to be able to do. He has no idea, really. He has no concept whatsoever that he cannot do. I mean, he has a concept in certain areas, but mostly he just doesn't know that he can't do. He doesn't know that he can't keep his word. He doesn't know that his word means something. He doesn't know that when he says something to somebody, that they register that. And that when he doesn't do it, his subconscious mind has registered it, and it calls him a liar. He doesn't understand that. It takes a long time to understand that. Yes, you're understanding it suddenly? Scary, isn't it? Yeah. Your subconscious mind notes everything. And when you say something and you do not do it, it says you're a liar. Because you are. Because you have said something and not done it. So, that is why it is so important, and I've taught you for over a quarter of a century, keep your word to your own harm. Because if you don't, you will do yourself a spiritual harm that is way beyond any physical harm that you can do yourself by keeping your word. It's better not to give your word than to give your word and not keep it. Just don't say it. Don't say it. That's the better way if you cannot keep your word. And I admit, most people cannot because most people don't understand what it means. Once you understand what it means, it's amazing how well you can keep your word. Amazing! 200 years ago, people kept their word regularly. They do a handshake. Yes, I'll do this. And they did it. Their honor depended on it. Their integrity depended on it. Their reputation depended on it. Their feeling of themselves, their feeling of I, depended on them doing what they said they would do in order to be honorable, reliable people. And that's what people wanted to be. This was before people only wanted to be rich and famous. Now people just want to be rich and famous. Long time ago, people wanted to be reliable and honorable courageous and dependable. And those are not things that you hear a lot about today. Those are not things that people strive to be today. And it's because we've fallen so low. But that's neither here nor there, because if you know that, I'm preaching to the choir. And if you don't know that, I'm talking to a brick wall. I'm not interested in talking to a brick wall, nor am I interested in preaching to the choir. So we'll leave that and move on. Actually, we should say rather that an internal perception of the meaning of another view of time might bring about this result. We would not suppose it comes merely from theoretical thinking. To be told that time is an illusion does not help anybody unless they've already caught a glimpse of another idea of time. But one can readily see that one's ordinary consciousness is very dominated by time and that a great deal of our fear and anxiety is a matter of time. Who's got enough time? I do. I have enough time. I get 24 hours in every day and it's enough time. It's perfect. I get time to work, time to rest, time to play, time to be idle, time to be busy. I have time for everything. And I'm grateful for that, but it took me a long time to get that. It doesn't come with birth. It comes with study, effort, experience, and the understanding that comes from applying what you study. What do we think about time? We exist in a world that we do not understand in the least. 
The amazing thing about us today is that we think we understand everything. We think that science has solved most all of the problems or is working on solving them. We have become materialists. What is nature? Oh, trees and, you know, stuff like that. Trees and flowers and grass and animals and the weather and stuff like that. What is time? Time is that stuff that's passing all the time. There's never enough of. Yeah, check what time it is. That's what we know about time. What is space? Space is where there isn't anything. What are we? We're human beings. See, we have all these answers, and none of them mean a thing, because we exist in a world that we do not understand in the least. This is such a hard thing to get people to see, because of our pride and vanity. We take all for granted. We do not face any real issues in our thinking, but we catch hold of some ready-made opinion. Do we ever get used to the mystery of time? That's just an example. Do we ever get used to the mystery of time? How can we get used to the mystery of time? We don't even know that time's a mystery. We take it for granted. Is not the problem of time always in the background of our minds, although we can never really think about it? Consider the strange experience that a person was, but is no more. Like your mother and father. They were, but they are no more. I have thought about this a lot from the time I was a child. Consider our childhood and death. Where is all that which has become was? Where is it? Where is all that which has become was? It used to be is, and now it was. And all that will be, where is all that? Is it stored up somewhere in another room waiting? Is it like a play? Exit stage left, enter stage right? What? What is this strange now and then, which when perceived together caused the mind to tremble on the verge of new meaning? We stand before ruins and wonder at the mystery of once upon a time. We cannot grasp what it means. We feel close to meaning that is potential, but which we cannot reach. Again, we may feel how strange it is that we live among people of every age, people whose time lies in front of them, and people whose time lies behind them. You look at kids today, and you think, oh my God, they've got 50 years ahead of them. And you look at somebody else, and you think, oh, they may have five or ten years ahead of them. All their time is behind them. And yet, they all exist right now. What's that about? We take it all for granted. We don't think what it's about. We don't think what it means. All inserted into a common point of another time, crowded into what is called the present moment of the world, different times meeting in the same time. You see that your grandfather was from a different time, and he was meeting you, who were from a different time, in the same time. And it was a shock to meet someone from a long time ago is a shock for people. Curtis and I were talking to someone a couple of weeks ago, and I don't know what we said. And he said, well, are you millennials? And Curtis said, what's a millennial? And I said, somebody born since 2000. And then the kid says, or thereabouts. So he was including himself as a millennial. And I said, no. And Curtis said, no. And he said, well, you see. His point was, you can't see things the way I see things. And I just let him go because... I could see very clearly how he saw things. And what he meant to say was, I can't see things the way you see things. But he couldn't say that because he knew everything there was to know. And when you know everything there is to know, there's nothing left to know. So you can't say what you don't know because it doesn't exist. Anyway, now for our ordinary understanding, time is a sort of nothingness. All that we know by direct experience is a hypothetical point of time which we call the present moment. In this present moment, we see things ending and beginning old and new things, passing out of existence and things coming into existence. And we know that this present moment is somehow moving and always turning into another present moment. No matter whether we're sitting still or walking about, 
this movement of time is always going on, but we can't think about it. We cannot think about it in the same way as we think about something we can see or touch. We don't think about time because we cannot grasp it with sense as we can a solid object lying in the three dimensions of space. We grasp the three dimensions of space through the visible objects that exist in it. What would you know of space without the visible objects that exist in it? Nothing, because you have nothing to compare it to. So you would know nothing of it. They have length, breadth, and height. Each of these directions is at right angles to the other. We don't think about that. Did you ever think that? Oh, what do you know? Each of these directions, length, breadth, and height, are directions, and they're at right angles to each other. We don't think like that. Thank God someone does. We say that a box is a three-dimensional object. A shadow on the wall is a two-dimensional. It has length and breadth, but no thickness, insofar as it lies on the wall. It is merely a surface, and so two-dimensional. A line, in the geometrical sense, is one-dimensional. It has only length. But turning from space, what can we say of time, save that it is a moment that somehow or other moves into the next, then into the next, in a manner which we cannot think about, because we cannot see this movement and can only mark it artificially by the hands of the clock, which we regulate according to the movements of the earth. We think of time as minutes, hours, days, years, but our thought does not get much beyond this. For how can we think, save from natural ideas derived from what we see? We cannot see time. Time is invisible, and naturally, we do not think of time as a dimension to be added to the three dimensions of space. Yet any object has not only length, breadth, and height, it has time also, or it would vanish. It is extended in time as well as in space. Until the beginning of this century, the science of physics, which treats of the motions of bodies, the measurements of quantities, and the nature of the external world, took space and time separately. The world, for it, was three-dimensional, and time was something apart. That is, space and time were treated as if they were independent of one another. The three coordinates of space, which correspond to rectangular lines drawn in the dimensions of length and breadth and of height, let them be called X, Y, and Z, were taken independently of time. We'll call time T. So we have X, Y, Z, and T. But the objects of our perception invariably include places and times in combination. That chair you're sitting on is a place, but it is also in time. If it weren't in time, you couldn't be sitting on it. Nobody has ever noticed a place except at a time, or a time except at a place. A point of space at a point of time, that is, a system of values, X, Y, Z, T. I will call it a world point. The multiplicity of all thinkable X, Y, Z, T values we will christen the world. This is from Minkowski, The Principle of Relativity, page 76. An object must always be in a certain place at a certain time, and to define its position in the universe in spatial terms only is not sufficient. So to try and explain it just in spatial terms doesn't work. It has to be in time as well. A motor car passes a particular spot in the road, which we can define spatially by taking coordinates and measurements. Now we have a GPS that can pinpoint things like, there, there it is. It's right there right now. A man passes over the same spot, and relative to our coordinates, he will be in exactly the same place as the car. Now you get this, right? Here's this spot on the road, and a car at this moment is there. And now we have those coordinates, and we've marked them. And now this man is standing here at the exact same spot, and we can take those exact same coordinates and mark them. The only thing that keeps them from colliding 
If we leave out time in that case, the car and the man must collide. If there's no time, if they're both on the same spot, they must collide. A further coordinate or value must be added, for although both the car and the man pass the same spot, an interval of time separates them. Observe the result of adding this fourth coordinate of time. We enter at once the invisible world. For to our visible perception, the world is three-dimensional, and the spot on the road that both the car and the man pass is the same visible spot in the three-dimensional world. It is the same place in the three-dimensional world, but it is not the same place in the four-dimensional world. So you can see that in the three-dimensional world, it's the same place. In the four-dimensional world, it's not the same place, because there would be a collision otherwise. In Minkowski's language, the spot on the road with the car passing it, and the same spot on the road with the man passing it later, are two quite separate world points. Now remember, we have the world points, and then we have the world. Time is thus taken as an element of the four-dimensional world, that is, of a world quite different from that perceptible to our senses. Our senses do not inform us of the four-dimensional world, but only of a world point, which appears as a three-dimensional world moving in time. We good so far? I told you this wasn't going to be that easy, but if you pay attention, you can get this. Every object, insofar as it persists in time, is not to be thought of merely as the visible three-dimensional thing it appears to be, as, for instance, my hand that I can see before me at this moment, but as describing a line in the dimension of time. My hand and my body do not describe the same lines. It would be better, perhaps, to say that they are not only extended in the three dimensions of space, but also in the fourth dimension. Such world lines lie in the four-dimensional world. Where world lines converge or meet, there is a point in the four-dimensional world which, if our conscious experience relates us to that world point, we call our present moment, and discover in it objects in a certain relation to one another in a three-dimensional space. The whole universe is seen to resolve itself into similar world lines, and I would fain anticipate myself by saying that, in my opinion, physical laws might find their most perfect expression as reciprocal relations between these world lines, Minkowski. We shall see later on that Fechner had similar ideas of the world. We have, moreover, to think that our own lives are lines in the four-dimensional world, and that, psychologically speaking, these lines have existence and presumably have reciprocal relations between them as lines, not only as points. We will come to the idea of the extension of our lives in higher dimensions subsequently. This, as I said, was going to be rather difficult, and so we're going to stop here to give you time <laughs> to take it in, think about it, and we'll pick up with passing time and time itself next time. Truth is everything.